From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I first met William Malone. Okay, I can't really call him anything other than Bill. Way back in 1977, I was answering phones for George Lucas's Star Wars Incorporated at a scruffy little former doctor's office a few blocks away from Universal Studios. Yeah, I was answering phones for the production company and operating the R2-D2 robot at personal appearances, including the Oscars that year. Bill was working at the Don Post Studios and created the licensed Star Wars Stormtrooper and Darth Vader masks that became outrageously popular. He was also a fledgling film maker at the time. I met Tom McLaughlin in about 1981 or 82, right around the time he made his first feature, One Dark Night, and I was doing publicity at Universal for their genre movies like The Thing and Halloween 2. Tommy had been an actor and a mime for years, and his father had been a carny. You can see him breathing fire in the classic freak show movie from the 40s, Nightmare Alley. I've been friends with Bill and Tommy for years now, and we have so much in common. We were all in bands, and actually Tom's band, The Sloths, reformed several years ago and are more popular than ever. We were all horror fans from childhood, and we all had the same popular culture touchstones in our lives. I never expected to be so lucky for us also to work on so many of the same projects together and apart. Tom and I created a series called She-Wolf of London together and co-wrote an amazing story script for Bob Zemeckis. We all directed episodes of Freddy's Nightmares. Bill and I did Tales from the Crypt, and when I was producing a short-lived series for Steven Spielberg called The Others, I was able to bring them both on to direct episodes. And Bill worked on my Masters of Horror series. All of us have had a lifelong love for the outre that we've also been able to make our livelihoods. They've both made amazing contributions to the world of dark cinema and have great stories of their own to tell. What was the movie that did it for you that brought you into this dark world we work in? I would guess it would have to have been Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know. Uh, I saw it when I was like uh, probably six years old or something. And Did you see it in the theater in I 3D? I saw it in the theater. My mom, for whatever crazy reason, took me to see it. You know, I was just a little tiny tyke. I remember spending the entire movie underneath the seats, you know, <laughs> and peeking out every once in a while to see the creature and then I'd dive back under. Did but you see I, it in 3D? I did see it in 3D. Wow. Yeah. In fact, the theater that I saw it in is in their poster ads, like for the trades. It said, you know, biggest box office ever. And it was the theater that I was, I saw it in. And what was it? Was it the monster? Was it? The monster and just how, I guess, dreamy the underwater sequences were. They were just so compelling. And I remember going home just, you know, having thoughts about the creature and stuff. And I remember having nightmares about the creature. And stuff. Really? And I loved it. <laughs> How about you, Tommy? I'd go right back to the Universal Horror movies. I don't know if there was one. I mean, Frankenstein, obviously, Dracula and the Wolfman, all sort of are together to me, all these outcasts that I... 
I was never scared of horror movies. I was fascinated and identified with these guys. Somehow felt like an outcast myself. I guess that says something about my childhood. <laughs> well, I think that that's a common uh, theme for fans and filmmakers or writers within the genre is the whole idea of being the outcast and identifying more with the monster than with the hero. Yeah. Well, you know, I was the only kid in my town that I can remember who liked horror films, you know. (laughs) Me too. Me too. I would get famous monsters at the liquor store and uh, I would sweep the parking lot and he would pay me in famous monsters. (laughs) Well, see, you were lucky you were able to get famous monsters at the liquor store. I had to go like to the nudie stand. (laughs) And everyone looked at me funny, you know. So we're in the same gutter, the nudies and the horror stuff. Yeah, growing up in a Catholic household, I would always have to buy two things. Famous monsters, also from a liquor store, because my mother would always find one and tear it up. But I always had the other one secretly <laughs> hid somewhere. So I had quite a collection over the years. Well, what was the first time? I mean, we all came out of the world of home movies, you know, and, and doing those things as kids. My first uh, when I was 12 years old, I made the return of the count and I built my own coffin and would read in it sometimes. That's maybe more information than I should be giving. <laughs> but um, what about you, Tom? You made shorts and things as well in your youth, right? Yeah, I I was really blessed in that my dad was a USC film student that when he graduated, no one wanted to hire a film student in 1949, but he did the next best thing. He bought a little home in Culver City next to the MGM and Hal Roach Studios. So I had that to play on as a kid. So it didn't take me long to figure out how to steal his camera. So about <laughs> seven or eight, you know, me and my friends would go under the fence at MGM in the back lot and we shot our little epics there. But you had to send your film away, the eight millimeter film, you know, in these little rolls. So some of it would come back and not all of it. So I've got all these half done movies over the years, but it was incredibly fun doing it. And what about you, Bill? I mean, well, you also had a playground of MGM, but it was in adulthood. You well, know? yeah, that was later. But, you know, as a kid, I mean, I'm, I'm like uh, uh, Tommy. I mean, I had uh, a little eight millimeter camera, you know, and which didn't focus very well. Yes, this like, is not Super 8, by the way, ladies this and gentlemen. This is regular. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But, you know, I made like little films and stuff. And I remember I made Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which I have little pieces of all my friends. You know, it's very silly, but it's, it's fun. I was always trying to do like visual effects that I'd read about, you know, like I was trying to do like the approach to Metal Luna, you know, with glass pla- plates and stuff. And, you know, and of course, because he couldn't focus, it was terrible. Well, you know, you have done so many of the different elements of filmmaking, too. I mean, you're a painter and you've done design, uh, artwork, illustration and a sculptor. And you've done makeup effects yourself and you do visual effects yourself as well. Is this all self-taught? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, probably from like reading all those early famous monsters. And there was a magazine called Fantastic Monsters That's Filmed, which was put out by Paul Blaisdell. Uh-huh. And he used to have a thing called The Devil's Workshop where he talked about how to do some of this stuff. And Who I made remember, some of the most horrible 50s monsters uh, <laughs> of all time. Uh, well, I like to think he, he was very imaginative, but he didn't have the technical skill. So. Yes. Yeah, good imagination, not so good with the hands. So, uh, and Tommy, you also came at it from a different direc- direction as well because you were an actor. Yeah, well, that came about as my dad was also a magician. So I started to learn magic at a young age because of him and started doing magic acts. And, of course, that makes you an entertainer and that makes you want to also be a performer. So didn't take long, and I guess we're sort of veering now into the, the 60s when <laughs> the Beatles hit and, right. you know, the Stones, and it was like suddenly, bye-bye filmmaker and performer, hello rock star. So it was like that thing that we all gravitated towards because, you know, this is what the girls wanted. <laughs> you know, you grow the hair and they, they love you, and I didn't, I didn't care, although my parents did, that I got kicked out of seven schools here in Los Angeles <laughs> over having long hair. Now, well, you're talking about the 60s. Let's talk about the band, the Sloths. Mm-hmm. And you had some pretty impressive credentials, the people you opened for and playing at the whiskey and things like that. And you were like 16, right? Yeah, 15, 16. Yeah. So, yeah, we opened for The Doors, I guess, like three times. Um, the Animals, uh, Love, which were the, you know, the main group there on, on the strip when we first started. 
Oh, God. I mean, it, it was uh, Iron Butterfly. I mean, anybody that came to town, you know, we were there to be, you know, part of it. And I was in the Monterey, at the Monterey Pop Festival, but in the movie, you know, and you can see this 15, 16 year old face, you know, looking like he was stoned and he was, and, <laughs> you know, watching all these acts. And of course, that was the big influence. It's like now after Hendrix and Who and stuff, it was like, that's what I had to do. So yeah, it was, it was an incredible period to be, you know, right here in Hollywood to be a part of, but we were so young that there was really no way we were going to get anywhere. And really young. I mean, I was in a band. We opened for the Kinks and various other people like that. And, and when I was a rock journalist, I, I was like 15 years old and interviewed Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and wow. things like that. And Bill, you played George Harrison in I Want to Hold Your Hand. I, you know? I did. I did. You know, cause I was, you know, like, like Tommy, I was a, a huge Beatle fan. You know, I, uh, Snuck backstage in '64 and you know got arrested for inciting a riot. And, oh, really? And, uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, but um, yeah, and I was at the Monterey Pop Festival too. Were you really? Oh yeah, I had conned my way. I was I was a little con man at that time. I, I <laughs> my older my, brother was there, but I wasn't. <laughs> I conned my way into press passes. I I went to see uh, Derek Taylor and uh, talked to, to. I had a nice looking who camera. was the Beatles publicist at right, time. but he was the guy who you had to talk to to get in a press pass. So he gave me a press pass, and I was backstage shooting pictures for the entire, you know, oh, Monterey incredible. Pop Festival. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 Henry Mancini's son, Chris, who I met in Catholic school in Santa Monica, I, his dad said, you know, I've got these tickets. Normally I go to the Jazz Festival in Monterey. I don't know what, this is a pop festival. You, you boys want them? <laughs> sure. And they were like front row seats. You know, oh, my Monterey. God. So, I mean, you know, we, we went in. Uh, Hitchhiking up? <laughs> no, no. Actually, okay. we drove up in his red uh, Mustang. And if you look about four of my movies have red Mustangs in them because it was like <laughs> a, the iconic car for me. Yeah. But it was great being... Um, you know, being able to play George Harrison on a, the Ed Sullivan show, you know, that was that was a great thing. Well, there, I think there's a striking uh, resemblance between the world of rock and roll and the world of horror movies. You know, they're both rebellious and they they really do incite personal fandom. You know, people mm -hmm. feel close to horror movies and they feel close to their music. And uh, both of you guys have incorporated those elements into your filmmaking as well. You know, you're both kind of rock and roll filmmakers, even when the movies aren't rock and roll. Mm -hmm. They feel that. And, and you guys have an involvement in the music that, in fact, the Plague's single, Bill, your, your movie Parasomnia, <laughs> actually uses the original uh, record you guys recorded, and then it turns morphs into a modern version of it. Well, actually, uh, we used the, uh, my record, which is called I've Been Through It Before by the Plagues. We used that in one of the scenes, but the one that you're talking about actually was the Bossman. Oh, okay. who was a local band. And I tried to use, uh, when I made Parasomnia, I wanted to sort of make it a sort of a love letter to a local band. So I put a lot of their local music in there. And that was uh, uh, Dick Wagner and the Bossman. And Dick Wagner later wrote uh, Welcome to My Nightmare with Alice oh, Cooper. Oh, there you go. And, uh, you know, so I'm sure it was very trippy for him when I called him up some billion years later and said, you want to re-record, uh, you know, <laughs> that song from 1965. Yes, I'd love to. <laughs> well, sadly, <laughs> we replaced some of his, his singing. <laughs> well, speaking about Welcome to My Nightmare and about Alice Cooper, Tommy, you did what I think is by far the best of the Friday the 13th movies, number six. Because, just Lewis. because it's Sheriff Garris that's uh, in there. Well, right? yes, that's the only reason. <laughs> was that the first time somebody did a tribute to you? In it's the, the first time somebody ever named a character after me, yeah. yeah. And, and it was unbelievably flattering. <laughs> and I brag about it to this day. Um, yeah. Well, you, you've had such an Im impact on my career, so it was the least I could do. Well, you, like I said in the open, you and I created a series together and we've done a lot of work together and it's been just an amazing friendship with both of you guys. But you worked with Alice Cooper on that Friday the 13th. You did the music video with him, right? No, I didn't do the music video. Oh, you I didn't really do the wanted video. to. No, they, I mean, the real irony is going back to the days, back to the 60s. I mean, I knew him as Vincent in a group called the Naz and we played on the same bill. Todd all the Rundgren's time. band. Yeah. 
Well, it wasn't. Todd, they, that's what they found out that there was another band, so they had to. Yeah, I didn't drop think the they name. worked together. Yeah. No, 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 yeah. no. And it, I now the legend is uh, he doesn't say this, but I mean, what we heard at the time because we were all hanging at Frank Zappa's house, his log cabin, and that wow. Frank came up with the idea. Why don't you call yourselves uh, Alice Cooper, the whole band? And supposedly that's where it came from, but. You know, Alice eventually decided. Well, it was on Zappa's record company, so that's probably true. Yeah, could be. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, so uh, yeah, all those years later, when we needed, you know, music for the movie, it was suggested. You know, what about Alice? He was trying to, you know, make a comeback, and they said I was like thrilled, and he gave us like you know, Teenage Frankenstein and Hard Rock Summer, and. It was just great to have, you know, a song written specifically for the movie, you know, The Man Behind the Mask by him. So, but yeah, the record company had their own, you know, director of music videos. So, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get to do that. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Well, this is the perfect day for this interview because we're recording this on Friday the 13th. Yeah. So, number six, that's deep into a franchise. <laughs> so tell me how you breathed life into it, because you did. This doesn't feel like any of the previous uh, movies other than it being summer camp horror. It's got a real sense of humor to it, mm -hmm. and it really has your personality. Well, it was... I wanted to make a comedy after I did One Dark Night, and that was sort of what my sights were set on, as like in a Frank Capra kind of romantic comedy, which was Date with an Angel. Right. But this was offered to me, and basically the only marching orders I had is we need to bring back Jason, figure it out, you know, because we've you know, Paramount saying, you know, we screwed up with part five by it not being Jason. So I looked at all the movies back to back. I only saw the first one, which I liked. And the others I was like kind of mixed about, you know, I mean, all of us who saw Halloween in a theater, it's like, OK, that's it. That's a definitive masked, you know, killer. And then there were so many other mass killer movies after that. And the only thing I could think to do is satirize it a bit, you know, have fun with it, you know, start with that James Bond thing, you know, so you <laughs> yeah. immediately I'm saying, <laughs> okay, here's a franchise, you know, and we're going to have fun with it and put kids in it, put underwater fight in it, put car race. I mean, tried to put as many things in that little $3 million budget, you know, that I could cram into it. I honestly thought the fans were going to hate it. I thought this is like, it's so against everything that they you know, we're used to, but must, to my surprise, here we are 31, 32 years later, and it's like the favorite. And I don't still understand it, but I'm certainly very honored because today is like my birthday, the amount of stuff I get, you know, <laughs> happy Friday the 13th, yeah, you know, Tommy. all over the world. And I went, it's just, you know, it's un unbelievable, but I get it. I mean, if, you know, if I had a chance to send something to James Whale or, you know, Boris Karloff or any of those people because of those movies, I mean, this is it for their, the fans of the 80s. I mean, they love all that stuff that we all created at that time period. You know, it's, it's you know, their childhood. Well, and a sense of humor is uh, horror and comedy are really close because they both go for a physical reaction. Uh, uh, Bill, your most successful movie was a remake of House on Haunted Hill. Right. But it's a very different movie than the original Vincent Price movie. So tell me what your marching orders were on that one. Well, really, I there really weren't any marching orders other than just, you know, make a, a good, scary, haunted house movie. And but they, they had a script that they gave to you to work from? Or? Not at all. Not at uh -huh. all. Actually, uh, what had happened is I had done a Tales from the Crypt episode, which they liked a lot. Uh, and... Um, they wanted to use the same writer, which was Dick Beebe. Uh, and so Dick Beebe, I think they waited like six months for his script to finally show up. And I got, we all got the script and we all felt the same thing, which is he probably wrote it on the last two days before he turned it in. <laughs> and, uh, oh, deadline coming. I'd better Dick, type. Dick was a lovely guy, but he had a problem with tipping the tubes. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, so I got together with Dick and I said, let's watch the original. Let's sit down and watch it. Let's see. Let's, make notes of everything we like about the original, which there was a lot of stuff to like. Yeah. And there were scenes I said, we've just got to do pay homage to this movie and then just try and make it amped up, make it, uh, you know, a modern film and scarier. And, and as, and I sort of remembered as a kid, the only thing that ever bothered me about the original movie was that there were no real ghosts, that the whole thing was just a, a prank or, you know, uh, uh, tricks by, um, Vincent Price. So I said, let's, let's, have that going on, but let's make a side story that there's actually real ghosts that they're not aware of until it's too late. 
So that's that was the approach. And um, the main difference was the original. Uh, the when I set out to make it, it was going to be a serious film. I mean, it was supposed to be like, I wanted to make it like The Haunting, the original 1959 Ooh, Haunting or yeah. 60. That was my intention. Well, um, I think it was probably about three or four weeks before shooting, I started getting pages from the writers of Friends. <laughs> and I went, uh, what movie are we making here? And it became very clear to me that the, the, what they really wanted, what the studio wanted, was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Aye, aye, aye. So I said, okay, let's... Which is probably the movie I've seen more than any other, by no, the way. No, and I love that, yeah. you know, uh, but that wasn't what we set out to make. So oh. I had to uh, switch gears and see how I could make that work. So make the funny stuff funny and the scary stuff hopefully scary. Well, the opening sequence is kind of a blockbuster sequence. It's kind of amazing. Was is that your idea, the roller coaster scene? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'd had that for a long time when I worked at Don Post Studios. We used to sell stuff to like the amusement parks. And I would always go to the amusement parks. And I said, these rides aren't scary. These aren't thrilling. I mean, there should be a real eminent threat of death. You know? <laughs> so I thought, what, what would be scary rides? You know, and that was one of them. And I had another one called Walk the Plank that I'd come up with, which <laughs> was a giant funnel that would be like 200 feet tall. And you had to walk across, across like on a little board. And of course, it would dump you in the middle. And <laughs> that one didn't make it into the movie somehow. No. I'll make a good escape room. I mean, <laughs> since they're getting into yeah, that yeah, now, you yeah. know, <laughs> ultimate challenge. Well, it's, it's interesting that you had worked for the same producer first on Freddy's Nightmares, uh, which both of you guys did and I did as well, <laughs> Tales from the Crypt, uh, and then it led to that movie. Tommy, you had done the Friday the 13th TV show, mm -hmm. and was that that was before you did number six, or was it after? Oh, after. It was after, yeah. right. No, and he, uh, Frank Mancuso Jr. came to me and said, well, first we, he wanted me to do another film after we did Jason. And I said, uh, well, what are you thinking? I don't know what it could be now. And he said, well, what do you think about Freddie and Jason? And I go, but Freddie's at New Line. You guys <laughs> at Paramount have, and it's like, well, we're going to try to see if we can work something out. So I started thinking about that going, it doesn't make sense. I mean, he lives in one realm and, you know, I take this stuff very seriously. What <laughs> realm a monster is supposed to stay in? And he came back, he goes, ah, forget it. It's not going to work anyway. Uh, you know, and I said, you know what? You guys own Cheech and Chong. What if we do Cheech and Chong meets Jason? I really? mean, I could just see in the forest and they're like <laughs> camp counselors or something. It's like, hey, man, there's a Jason out there. No, man, it's a myth. You know, and just, <laughs> but he said, you know what? No, because the comedy audience is going to want that kind of movie. The horror audience is going to want the other, those two. You know, what you did was fine with having the satire. No, we can't. Let's not go too far. <laughs> so then he started talking to me about this, you know, series. And I said, well, how does Jason play into it? And he said, well, not at all. It's like cursed objects and things. And it took, I guess, about another year or so before they finally kind of put that together. And then I first came in as a story editor. Uh, so I had not had a nice job in an office at Paramount and then started to write some episodes that I then directed up in Canada. And that was kind of the early days of the whole Canadian American co-productions. And, you know, we were in these ramshackle studios and the crew hadn't done much other than TV shows and stuff. And they were so hardworking. I mean, every show, the director would come in there and do 18 hour days. And those guys just hung in, no complaints, you know, and, you know, as the years went on, you know, they became the elite, you know, and the guys down here were, you know, not getting work. Well, uh, they actually got David Cronenberg to do an episode. Yeah, and I were know. you on the set when that was going on? No, yeah. no, no. No, I didn't. I didn't see that. There, there were so many people. Uh, you know, Armand. You know, did a ton right. of those shows. Mastroianni. Yeah, yeah. And Rodney Charters, who is a director of photography, who did Sleepwalkers for me, mm -hmm. uh, as well as Psycho Four for me, um, came out of that show yeah. as well. Yeah, he was amazing to work with. So the move between movies and television. I mean, television has become so much more welcoming to the genre, and you can actually get away with stuff these days, but. Early days, you know, for us, the Freddy's Nightmares type thing, which was early for all of us, I think, in television, very low budget. Extremely low budget. <laughs> really, really challenging stuff. Shot on 16 millimeter. But the concept was doing two half hours, but treat it like an hour so that if they go into syndication, they'd have double the number of them as half hour shows. So, so Toby Hooper did the first one. Mm -hmm. I did the second one. And Tommy, you did the third one, but it was broadcast 
second, mm-hmm. and it was really good oh, and so much better than the rest of it. But tell me your experience with it, and then we'll move on to Bill's and how it turned into the, the Tales from the Crypt experiences. Uh, well, it's also very fortunate to have Lar Park Lincoln, you know, be right. one of the stars in it. And um, it was, you know, it was a script that um, – oh, what was his name? Uh, he's now a major – mucky muck in this business that was uh bob bob's uh kind of assistant really young guy um hmm. i don't know I think of his oh name. yeah he became the head of new line and then uh, uh oh mike uh deluca mike deluca, mike DeLuca. Mike DeLuca. Sure. Yeah. yeah and mike was this you know kind of crazy kid who i think was the one who said to bob about uh you know this this will work and this will be great and and he was their youth specialist he yeah. was on critters too which yeah. was in the year before that series and, and uh he basically you know we had like half of scripts you know and ideas and stuff so so much was like kind of improvised you know on this <laughs> on the shooting so the days of course would go long everybody would be upset you know we're doing these <laughs> yeah. enormously long days and but i just wanted to kind of go into a whole surreal crazy thing about it and it, it's amazing that Bob Shea didn't fire me. He was very, very angry, you know, about what I was doing and stuff. But then, of course, the nice, you know, end of the story was is when we had the kind of the party to celebrate it. He came over and he said, you know, I'm sorry I got so upset, but this is great. This is a great, you know, episode. So, you know, it's always nice when at the end of the day they appreciate it. But it was hard. I mean, it was very hard trying to be that ambitious and really not have things scheduled, you know, that was going to take that long. But all in all, I'd say it was a, it was a fun experience. And uh, my former wife, Nancy McLaughlin, was in there and did a wonderful <laughs> job. And, you know, as her crazy nurse character. And, yeah, it was, uh, it was a great time. Well, it was uh, – what I remember about it being so challenging was the, the schedule was really short. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't much opportunity to really use the tools of filmmaking because there was no time. Um, I guess you took more time. <laughs> <laughs> that you were able to do. So, Bill, what was your experience on that? Well, as was typical of me in those days, I was always hired on, like, after the show had been running for a while, <laughs> and they'd run out of all the good directors. So, uh, <laughs> they, uh, I was on season two, I guess it was, yeah. which had, I think, believe different producers you'd have to tell me uh, yeah that there were a couple of different producers but it yeah, was Gil jeff, adler and, and, and jeff uh, uh, uh and uh you know but uh, fortunately what happened with me is I, I really sort of saw it like film school because they didn't care at that point it was just it was just a cash cow for the producers they didn't care what was going on as long as you came in on time on budget so i was forever trying to do shots that like you know, uh, I guess you need techno cranes for and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> but I was trying to do yeah. it with a dolly and stuff. And, <laughs> and, uh, but it was really a lot of fun, even though their shows were terrible. <laughs> I mean, the shows I did were just awful. They really okay. Were. I'll confess it's my <laughs> least favorite thing I've ever directed. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> I, the, not the experience so much, but I don't think I did a great show. You know, it was, I, Lori Petty was an actress in it. She was great. And Yvette Niper and it was the there, fingers too. You had, then did you have the infamous chopped off fingers? Is that the episode? Yeah. Or yeah. Well, I chopped off a head. Oh, I had. Uh, a head. Okay. Yeah. So I have to ask a question. Oh, Mick, what's the worst thing you've ever done? <laughs> Freddy's nightmares. Okay. Worst thing I've ever done. Uh, Probably the last two movies I did for Lifetime, because <laughs> I was not there. Well, well, but for me, I, I did this uh, uh, pilot for a TV show for for uh-huh. Joel Silver. It was called uh, Weird World, and just everything. The only thing that was good about it were the actors and the film stock. That was <laughs> well, you had Jeffrey Combs in there too. Uh, yeah, well, I had Je- no, actually, Jeffrey. Was oh no, that was no, in no, the no, other. He was, yeah, yeah, but because it had the same producer with Gilbert Adler right. uh, uh, from Freddy's Nightmares to Tales from the Crypt, that opened the door. Or for both of us to do Tales from the Crypt. Right. And, and I must thank you because you were instrumental in getting me the Tales from the Crypt episode. Well, it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't done the Freddies and, yeah. and they were so happy with the work you'd done. But once again, we were on season six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the dying years. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually I liked because the pressure level was very low at that point, you know, because, yeah. you know. <laughs> but you did like... An amazing one. Tell me about your first experience because that happened before the show moved to England, right? Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, season six was still in the U.S. Season seven went to England. So I did, uh, I think, a second, third episode. It must have been the third because I think you did the second, didn't you? I don't even remember don't which remember, number it yeah. was, but it's the same season. But yours was very dark and grim. And this was a show that was kind of the, the jocular boobs and blood show <laughs> at the time. And yours was serious and dark and arty. Well, and it was really kind of, you what know, was the name of it? Uh, it was called Only Skin Deep. Yes. And uh, I have to say, I, I they sent me the script. It was like a, a, a love letter from heaven or something. I, I read the script. I said, I know exactly how to do this. I know this, what this should be. And, uh, um, you know, and I cut out a lot of stupid stuff that were, that was, there was some things that were kind of silly in there. And then, uh, um, you know, set about to make it. And it was, it was what they call a bottle show. Now, if the people out there don't know what a bottle show is, it's usually the cheapest episode of any, Season. It's self-contained in yeah. one set. Yeah, basically. They, yeah. They usually like, you know, you don't go anywhere. You just sit there, and it's usually people talking in a room. That's what a bottle show is. But, um, but because of the nature of the episode, uh, I felt like I, even though it was four days, everybody else got five. I felt like I had plenty of time. I wow, yeah, four days. Yeah. So, and then the show the next year moved to England. And it was an entirely different experience working there, right? Oh, completely different. Yeah, because <laughs> and not the, much fun. <laughs> not a lot of fun, yeah. There was a lot of weird stuff at show. I mean, you'd ask for sets, you'd get there. You know, they were supposed to build this elaborate set. I get there and there's like curtains. <laughs> that was my <laughs> set. Uh, you know, you'd be shooting and unlike in the United States, if you go overtime, they just say, okay, we're going to go in. The, the producer used to come down and says, we're going to go into the overtime to thing. Uh, there, they just pull the plug. And you could be in the middle of a take, which is what they did. I was in the middle of a take, and they turned off the lights and the camera. <laughs> See you in the morning, Bill. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I, I was in shock. I've never had such culture shock, I guess. Talk about culture shock. Tommy, how did you go from Friday the 13th to the romantic comedy Date with an Angel? Well, um, I mean, most people find it hard to believe that my mentor was Frank Capra. And having met him when I was still like a student at Sherwood Oaks Experimental College, where it was people from the industry that would come in and show you their films and you got to talk to them and stuff. And I had a directing class with Irvin Kirshner and Woody Allen came down and taught comedy and Lucille Ball came and taught, you know, uh, <laughs> comedy. And I had, what? 10 weeks with Rod Serling on screenwriting wow. and Sid Field on well, before he wrote his book, you know, we we're the, sort of the guinea pigs. So I was kind of, you know, at, at that period when I really, you know, was looking for somebody to like give me the, what I really wanted to do, what was a something to aspire towards. And Capra was it for me is like, I loved the fact that it was one man against the system, you know, and all the adversarial things that he had. And yet, you know, he could make a difference and all his films sort of had that feeling. So, so much of my stuff, even Friday the 13th, you know, one guy jumps in there, wants to just see that Jason is dead, ends up bringing him back to life. And now the whole thing is about how is he going to stop this, you know, from happening, which of course. Ah, Friday the 13th as a Capra film. As a Capra yeah. film. Okay. Exactly. There we go. And likable characters. That was the other thing I got yeah. from Frank is if you're going to make people sit in the dark for two hours, have them like the people. So if something bad happens, you care. It's not like, yeah, kill her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, oh shit, I kind of liked her, you know? And yeah. so a lot of those rules kind of came into me and, I always, growing up Catholic, I loved angels and had this fantasy about an angel, you know, coming into somebody's life. And I knew a guy who had just died of a, of a, of a tumor, you know, in his brain that he knew nothing about. And I thought, God, you know, that's so unfair. He's a young guy and, you know, no idea. And so these two ideas kind of merged into kind of a dark thing and then who would come to get him. So. That was something I took around, but there was no splash. It wasn't even E.T. in those days. Nobody wanted to do that fantasy, but they wanted to do horror. So it took a while before I finally got to that point. And Friday was the thing that did it because it went to Dino De Laurentiis and he was friends with, you know, the, 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 the both Mancusos at Paramount. And uh, he says, all right, I'm going to make your angel picture. And, you know, and so you weren't in that, that horror ghetto then that kept anybody from hiring you to do anything but horror movies. Yeah, I, I know. Well, I went right back into Stephen King. Sometimes they come back. Right, <laughs> right. Know. A classic TV 
movie, but it was made more like a feature. In fact, it was yeah. shot widescreen, yes. wasn't it? Yeah, we had to shoot it for television and widescreen at the same time. I had to constantly keep checking the frame because it was going to be, yeah, in scope in Europe for Dino's cousin or nephew or whatever it was that was distributing it over there and then CBS. So their requirements were that it was in CinemaScope, not exactly. just 185. Exactly, yeah. Wow. So, and- but that going on to television, then I got an offer to do this miniseries in a, in a child's name, which I knew nothing about TV movies, didn't want to be doing television, but... You know, it was a chance to basically make, you know, a miniseries. So I took it on. I I put in one little horror sequence, you know, that almost got me fired with the green luminol. And Which things. is at the end of part one. Part one. Right? And, yeah, and that, it was phenomenal. Well, let's explain what that was. Okay. This was the after a murder has taken place and there are no clues anywhere. They're searching the house and they use luminol, which basically... You turn out the lights and it illuminates everywhere where blood has been. Yes, and it's green, glowing, you know, icky look. It was the most amazing exclamation mark at an end of a part one for a miniseries. And it was nobody had ever done this before. And it just like it took your breath away. Yeah. And it was weird. It's the first time in my life I went, you know, if I went to the dentist, people were talking about it. And 7-Eleven, I heard people, did you see that thing last night? As a result, the second night went through the roof and it became the number one movie that year. So suddenly I went from obscure horror director to now, you know, a a mainstream TV movie person that I did not want to (laughs) be. So, but it it was a chance to suddenly do all these real monsters, you know, AIDS, global warming, uh, you know, segregation, alcoholism, mental illness. So I went from Freddy, Jason, you know, because we did obviously the, the Freddy Nightmares, the Friday and the King thing. So much of that we shared. Now it's like, OK, let's let's do the real stuff and try to bring those a Capra elements of people you care about, even the villains I wanted you to care about. When I did DC Sniper, I wanted you to understand Muhammad and Malvo and that they were just, it's a twisted father and son love story. And yet they terrorize the world, you know, being the, the DC Sniper, you know, and son. So I tried to take those same sensibilities and put them into these other movies. And, you know, it was three movies a year as opposed to one movie every three years. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bill, you also had extensive work in television, but your movies were almost always of your own creation. Um, you know, well, the first one uh, and and Creature, which right. has just shown last <laughs> week at the New Beverly and stuff. Oh, wow. And uh, and your Klaus Kinski experiences are, are notable. And, and I'd love to hear a little about that. But even more recently with Paris Omnia, you came up with it. You you got the funding. You you made it on your own. You did all of the visual effects yourself. You taught yourself how to do them on on your computer. So tell me about that kind of homemade quality that you've brought to it? Well, I think it just goes back to the f- fact that, you know, I've always been sort of handy you know, yeah. with, with, with making things, and, and uh, which came from my dad. My dad built an airplane in his garage. What? You know, so. <laughs> did it <laughs> so, fly? It did. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, so, uh, but, yeah, I mean, um, all of that stuff, I think as filmmakers, and I think you'd agree with this, that, that you are the sum total of all the experiences that you've had, you know, and, and your films represent all of that. And I always think if you ever want to know what a filmmaker is really like, just look at his movies mm-hmm. and you'll know, uh, you know, uh, so, but. Yeah, so I had a lot of, uh, you know, background in music, as you mentioned, and, you know, building things. And, you know, I worked at Don Post Studios making monsters and so forth. And so filmmaking just sort of brought all those elements together. And when you're making an independent movie, the first thing you, the first question you ask yourself or should ask is, what can I bring to it that would cost somebody else a lot of money? (laughs) It's not going to cost me because I'm going to do it. So, so in the case of Parasomnia, that was a, you know, completely a home project and uh you know uh so i just pulled together everything i could that you know that that i could uh, bring to it that i could do myself so well I'd, i want to hear a klaus kinski story <laughs> <laughs> klaus oh my goodness well my second movie was as you mentioned was a movie called creature which was the original shooting title was T- the titan find which is what we shot under and the script I wrote with Bob Short, who's the effects guy, 
and he he and I wrote a script and about two weeks before shooting, I think it was, I get a call from Moshe Diamant, who was the producer, and he goes, Bill, I want you to know that I just hired Klaus Kinski to be in your movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure my my head started to spin because I knew two things, which is number one, there was no part in him. For, for, for him, him. <laughs> in, in the movie. Number two is I'd heard that Klaus Kinski was a maniac, you know, so I thought, okay, how am I going to do this? So we wrote a character in, for a crazy captain of a German ship. And of course, Klaus shows up and he's 10 times crazier than <laughs> any of the character that we wrote. My for. best fiend, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Klaus, you know, Klaus was not a good guy. <laughs> he was. <laughs> I mean, the first words out of his mouth, he's, we were walking to the set, and he put his arms around, and he goes, Bill, I just want you to know that when Natasia was 12, I raped her. And, I, and I, I'm sure my head just spun. Oh, my God. You know, and I thought, what do I do with that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Nice to meet you, too, Mr. Yeah, Kinski. And, and it went downhill from there. Oh, jeez. You know, and uh, I had him for about a week, and I remember, I think on day two, he called his agent to come down to see if he could run, run rough shot on him. And he was, had all the crew members, like the, particularly the girls in tears. Like the oh, makeup Jesus. girl was like, she was in, in tears and, and, uh, she says, you're going, I want you to powder my asshole, you know? What? Yeah. I mean, the stuff that came out of his mouth would embarrass a sailor. And, uh, I don't want to know what went into his mouth. <laughs> and I think it was on, uh, it was on that Wednesday. I, I remember thinking to myself, I got to do something with this guy. So, um, the next day I came in and I just, I, I'm not a screamer as you know, I, I, I'm a very soft-spoken guy on the set, and that's not something I do. But I turned around, I winked to the cameraman, I turned around to Klaus, and I just started screaming at him. And I told him that that, that if he didn't hit his marks and do his job, I was going to go down to B&B and come a gun shop and come back. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he was like a pussycat for the next two days. Really? And so then, he just needed a whip. Yeah, he did. And once you, like, stood up to him, he was like, okay. You know, but yeah, he was... But I will say, you know, when he was on camera, he lit up the screen. I mean, he's just an amazing talent, you know. But, you know, he's dead now. So the so you can say this. And, yeah. and the world is a better place. And, <laughs> oh, and, you know, he wouldn't mind me saying that, by the way. So don't feel that I'm saying something funky. <laughs> oh, God. Well, one of my best experiences was I was in a position. I, I had directed a pilot for Steven Spielberg for a series called The Others. And when it got picked up, I was asked to be supervising producer on it. And one of my jobs was hiring directors. And I was so lucky to be able to bring each of you guys in. Both of you guys delivered like crazy. Tell me what that experience was like for you, because I wasn't on your set every day, Tommy yeah. uh, or Bill. Um, and I would love to know because... You know, we never really talked about it afterwards, but... No, it's true. Um, well, it was interesting because it was mixed. First, I was incredibly grateful, you know, that yeah, you yeah. did this. Yeah. And it was obviously <laughs> the second time, you know, getting to work for a Steven Spielberg show, but still to this day have not met Steven Spielberg. Oh, he but, never came to the set or anything like that. But, you know, it's... I it, know we had a line producer who was a pain in the ass. Yeah, and they had a, you know, a tough AD and things, and they really wanted to, you know, run a tight ship with this thing. Great cast. You know, everybody in there was, was terrific. And I'm sure you had something to do with that because you did the pilot. Well, right? I was involved. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, you know, all that was great. Um, I remember there was one thing that uh, Robin Givens, the the actress, I cast her and I wanted her to be the head of the sorority. And they all came at me saying, no, you can't have a black woman the head of a sorority. And I said, why not? What? She's smart. She said, no, no, that's just not real. And I go, so what? It's, you know. Robin was really upset. I still put her in the movie, but she was like, this is the part that she wanted. And So you had cast her and then they said no. Well, it was part of the casting thing when, you know, because ah. obviously you got to run the cast by the producers. But and that really bothered me, um, you know, that that particular thing that I wanted to do couldn't happen. But at the same time, there was just a lot of really wonderful talent that were a part of that show and working with Rodney again, you know, Charters yeah, was, yeah. was incredible. And he had, I had brought him in to do the pilot yeah. as well. And they ended up using him for the show. So, um, yeah, I mean, the only dark thing in the whole thing was in the middle of shooting. And this is like happened 
uh, uh, with my mother, my father, and then my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law passed away in the middle of the shooting on that. So on the weekend, you know, I had to go up to, to, you know, San Francisco, see her literally in the hospital bed just before she passed, the funeral, all that, and then come back and do it, which, Again, it's it's weird how life and your movies sometimes it's like it it will affect it you know and there and sometimes Absolutely. you're more sensitive about certain things especially if you're doing you know darker material. My mother died when I was doing Murder in Greenwich in New Zealand. You know, my dad died when I was doing Stephen Banks Home Entertainment Center, wow. and I literally <laughs> had comedy. to direct yeah. the the uh, you know I mean do the. Um, uh, funeral and do the eulogy. And then an hour later, I was at Fox directing Steven in the show. And it's just, but you just deal with life as you yeah. make movies, you know, yeah. as the, as opposed to doing life and getting to make a movie that always sort of was the reverse with me. Yeah. It was Shelley Johnson, not Rodney Charters on, on the others. Oh, that's right. I'm yeah, so sorry. Yeah. That's Who right. Sorry, Shelley. Yes. Fire next time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I know you also had to have a timeout because you had a premiere of this big number one blockbuster movie while well, it was shooting. Yeah, it was the premiere night, and and uh, God bless you on n- numerous <laughs> things. And first of all, hiring me to be on the show, but also you saved my butt at the end because <laughs> I had to go and go to the premiere of House on Haunted Hill and I wasn't able to finish the last couple hours of shooting and you came in and did a great job on that. So. Well, uh, I mean, you had set it up. All I did was call action and cut. Yeah, it was easy. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I guess I had sort of, sort of a similar experience on the, on the film as, uh, or on the show as, as Tommy did. Um, the, there was one producer who I, I suspect is the same person who was always trying to get people fired, not me. But <clears> and I'll have maybe, a story maybe about she was that trying producer. To get me fired. I don't know, but but uh, was you know trying to get uh, various actors fired, which I was just kind of annoying, and and then would come down and tell me what shots they wanted and what shots I couldn't shoot and stuff like, which I thought was a little odd, you know, for for a show like that. Well, on uh, when I did the pilot, we were in the editing room, and um, this producer had <laughs> asked to be alerted anytime Steven Spielberg was going to be there because wanted to be around Steven. Oh, I said she. Now I've given it away. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, while we were in the cutting room, and Steven and I had worked together because I did amazing stories as the story editor and then independently in the second season. So we had been friendly and worked together and all. And so we're in the cutting room with the door closed, and uh, Stephen needed to use the restroom. So he goes, opens the door, and she almost falls in on top of him because <laughs> she wants to be there. But anyway, but that's for another time. But the thing about the others is it's a show nobody saw. And I don't think it's available anywhere. And I wish it were because yeah. there's some it, really it's, it's great It's available work. in Germany. Oh, great. It's okay. on DVD. I've got the box set really? from Germany. Yes, ah. it's available in Germany. And it's a really good show. And I think yeah. he did a great job with it. It's a shame that it didn't go on longer. Well, Morgan and Wong became involved from X-Files and they became producers on that. And, yeah. uh, uh, and, you know, there were some really great ones and your episodes, both of you guys were two of the best ones. And part of it was you had good scripts to work with, but part of it was you both brought style to it. Um, you know, there's, there's something very personal about filmmaking as you were talking about, mm-hmm. Tommy, and, and, and you were saying judge some, uh, a filmmaker by the films, you know, right. get to know who he is. Where does that come from? What is it filmmakers, Tommy, that inspired you specifically? Were there filmmakers that, that you saw during your wonder years that gave you that or, or is the process of filmmaking something that frees you to unleash your visual imagination? Well, it's funny because now the last four years I've been teaching film at Chapman University Dodge College. So I'm working with the new generation of filmmakers, you know, talking to the 18 to 25 year olds. Most of them want to make horror movies because they're all smart enough to know that's how they're going to probably get their break, you know. And then, of course, they want to be showrunners now because series is doing such great stuff. And I teach from a book now that I just discovered a year ago called Steal Like an Artist. Mm. And it's a small little what I call a toilet book that you can just <laughs> put next to the toilet, open it any time when you're on the can, and there's some brilliant little sound bite in there from Picasso or Jim Jarvis or, you know, any of the great artists talking about we steal, hacks, borrow, 
artists steal. And, <laughs> you know, and, and the good ones like Scorsese and these guys will say to you, you know, yeah, I got this from Howard Hawks and I got this, you know, it's like, Admit that, you know, as the great painters did, you know. I, is that what Picasso said? The, the uh, difference between a great artist and a good artist is a great artist uh, will steals but never tells you who these steals from. Yes. <laughs> that, I think that quote's in the book, actually. I mean, it's it's revolutionary when you actually look at it and go, it's okay to say that, yeah, I, I got that from Stanley Kubrick. That's a direct lift from The Shining. But usually people don't. You know, when you're watching the movie, because your sensibilities make it a little different. It goes so, through a filter. Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking about an entire movie rather than a shot. Yeah. So who were the people for you? Well, I got to say, most of the TV movies, you know, because I did not want to be doing TV movies and they were always looked at as, you know, wide shot over two singles, you're out. Yeah. And I'm going, how would Marty Scorsese do this scene? <laughs> you know, or... or if you Marty know. Scorsese were doing a Lifetime movie, exactly. what would he do? Yeah. You know, and I kind of try to put that headset on, you know, that that's what I wanted to listen to. Okay, what would make this interesting? How could I move the camera? What could I do? And of course, Marty was imitating all the movies that, you know, he did. So in this book, it also talks about, not, don't just you know, look at the artist, look at who influenced him and who influenced them. Do your research because you'll start to realize everybody is borrowing or stealing, you know, <laughs> and and it's the only time when you get caught, then it's plagiarism. But <laughs> if they don't notice it, it's become like, yeah, and then you start to do your own stuff over a period of time because, I, you know, well, I got sick of, you know, imitating myself at a certain point, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, God, I just did that three movies ago. Come up with something else, man, you know. Yeah. Well, as you said, it's like a filter, though, but you you take all of that stuff in and you have things that really influence you. you say, oh, I'm going to lift this. But by the time it goes through you and it's filtered out, it becomes something slightly different mm-hmm. and becomes And you can't unique. help it. Yeah, and it becomes unique, you know, so. Well, and, and as a painter, I'm sure you bring influences uh, other than just filmmakers. But who were your influences or who do you, did you steal from as you were forming? Well, I still steal. A, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Who do you steal yeah. from as you, well, you know, you know I evolving? Guess, well, I mean, the people who really influenced me were guys like F.W. Mornow, who, mm. you know, and yeah. Edgar Ulmer. But Mornow particularly, I think, is the greatest director ever walked the planet because what, like you say, you know, we're all stealing he didn't have anybody to steal from. He was like shooting in like 1920 and 1922. And he was creating the language of film. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and you look at his stuff and it's just amazing. You know, I'm, I'm always amazed that people don't want to watch silent movies mm-hmm. because you, the, the treasure trove of things that are in there, you just look at shots and you go, how did they do that? I mean, there's even just some lighting things like in, uh, I think it was, um, the wind with uh, Lillian Gish. Yeah, there's wow. there's some sequences in there that are just stunning. And there, there's a scene where she's carrying a lantern. Now you gotta remember this is like 1926. She's carrying a lantern, and the scene is clearly being lit by the lantern. It's not somebody off camera with a uh, thing where going, you don't see the shadow right. of the lantern. <laughs> and you're going, how the hell did they do that back yeah. in 1926? And film was so slow at slow that time. Slow film. Too. Yeah. I mean, either either it was setting her hand on fire or something. I don't no but but and there's this great sequence in there where she's like trapped in this uh room and there's like sun, uh, sand blasting you know outside and you know from this storm sandstorm is going on and she's like going crazy and the whole camera's rocking back and forth with her it's just it's just mm-hmm. dreamy and it's it's uh, amazing but all that stuff is like you know you you lift from that you yeah. know you you pull out what you can. And I really appreciate when you came down to the horror class that I taught that one <laughs> summer. And that's what Bill did. He's, he brought all these silence you know, mm-hmm. clips. And these guys had never seen any of that yeah. stuff. And for me, it was like, yes, yeah, show them the really good stuff, you know, because there's so many images in there that it's like, that's, if you're going to steal from something, take from something that really was from stage and from paintings. And, you know, I'm sure that's what influenced those guys, but you really wouldn't see it. You know, yeah. we have no, you know, no way to catch up with what right. it was that, you know, they, they saw. But one yeah. of those guys in that class has gone on. He's off making his first horror oh, movie great. now. So, you know, I'm sure you influenced him. <laughs> well, what's great is that every form of media 
goes through evolution. And both of you guys have evolved. You know, you're constantly evolving and changing and living, you know, seeing new visions and, and seeing everything as a new approach rather than making the same movie over and over again. You know, particularly Parasomnia is not much like Scared to Death, Bill. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I <it's, hope. laughs> yeah, but I mean, even what it's trying to achieve yeah. is much more technological and contemporary in ways that were very original to that. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, you try and grow. I'm Tommy I'm, and Nick, I'm sure you feel the same way. Anytime you make anything, you try and make it better than the last thing you did and try and explore new things. You know, you don't want to make the same movie over and over again. I actually, I've had nightmares about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making the same movie. Oh no. Groundhog Day. Yeah. But don't, don't you guys find too, I've never actually asked, and this is one for the masters of horror, is that it's so hard to do something now because your mind is going, okay, that's like this. I did that before, you know, trying yeah. to find, oh, what can I bring? fresh to horror, you know, because we know so much, we've seen so much, and so much of the young generation, they've, you know, it's like, they want to do Edgar Wright movies, or obviously Quentin, and, you know, that's their modern day heroes, and those are kind of imitations of imitations. Well, they're making movies based on movies and TV rather than movies based on life. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, the, every filmmaker has become more film student than, than human being in, mm -hmm. in a certain sense, but... Tommy, half of your output has been like Lifetime and television movies and things that, as opposed to like the first half of your output, which was horror. Do you consider yourself a horror filmmaker? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, is that you, what you identify with more than the? Well, that's what you know. I mean, you look up Wikipedia, and it's like I, the guy that did you know Friday the Thirteenth Part Six, and I <laughs> yeah. never thought that was going to be kind of the the first and foremost thing. But that's the thing that has the longevity, you know. And you don't know when you do it. Uh, I literally took that movie off of my resume at a certain point because. <laughs> You know, I was being, you know, touted to do movies that were sponsored by Kmart or Hallmark or these things. Yeah. And they went, oh, slasher movie. Nope. Next. You know, so, you know, I wanted to still do human dramas. I wanted to do dark subjects. There's no question that Edgar Allan Poe is deep in my psyche, you know, from <laughs> my childhood. So those things influence regardless. But I love to see people laugh. I love to do something that gets to people's heart, you know, and touches them. But the main thing, I love things that haunt you, you know, mm -hmm. that after you walk away and you go, whoa. I mean, Mother, for all the critiques that it got, people were really disturbed. <laughs> you know, yes, when you walked out of Mother, sure. you know, like, what did you think? Hated it, hated it, hated it, got an F. But I'm, I know as years go on, there's going to be a whole, you know, cult that's going to go to that movie and go, yeah, isn't that disturbing and this and that, and, you know. I mean, he really risked major failure and got failure, but at the same time, you know, three shots, you know, three things for that whole movie. I thought, well, I love the fact he's willing to risk his career and a studio was willing to back this guy to do what I thought was a really horrific piece. Well, and maybe better to be hated than to be indifferent, you know. <laughs> I always think you're, if you're making something that is on the edge that's when you're doing your best work you have to be on the brink of disaster <laughs> and no really no and, i agree with you and sure. and uh um you know you have to be willing to fail miserably and i, I always <laughs> think that the movies that people really hate or really love i mean they're both the same really because mm -hmm. if you really hate it you've touched somebody in some fashion that they don't either want to like deal with or yeah. something you know because if a movie's just bad people go ah eh, whatever you know but, yeah but if they hate it there's, there's usually something behind <laughs> there's it. something there yeah. yeah um what would be the one project you haven't made that you really want to make oh gosh i've got a couple of them you know i mean there, there, there's one called the mirror which was a project that i wanted to make for years and years and and it the i don't understand why it actually didn't get made because it was super commercial i've read it and it's great and it's h r giger yes <laughs> you wow. know and it was a giger basically uh uh extravaganza well, well you I went wanted... back to switzerland to work with giger i did i worked with him for like a uh, a week in zurich and uh we had plans to build his sets full scale it was just going to be like just crazy stuff and we came very close to getting getting it made on numerous occasions but just didn't just couldn't 
get it get it over the edge. So and, and Tommy, what's your dream project? Well, I've got this ongoing obsession to remake my first movie, One Dark Night, because at that time I knew nothing. You know, since that time I've done 42 films. So it's like, all right, I know a lot more than I did then. So I want to bring something more with the character, take the monster, Raymar, bring him up in front of the story so we kind of know what he does. The mother, I mean, the uh, the daughter, you know, father's aspect to the story kind of changed the, the the girls to something a little bit different and i've been working and working on that the problem was i couldn't find the rights because the company kept going bankrupt and it kept getting sold <laughs> off and sold off none of us made any money somebody else is making money the blu-ray's coming out somebody's making money and i thought i want to go back not so much for the money but for the artistic challenge of taking something that you knew could have been better and try to see if you can do that um i also have a, a horror concept that I think is no one has done yet that I'm, you know, very, very obsessed with. And now with the band, you know, we're, we're going over to, we just uh, signed actually today. It was announced that we're on, uh, eternal records, uh, at, in, uh, Germany and they're going to try to like get us going in Europe. And I would love to do something there, you know, going anytime I've gone there, you know, they really embrace the ideas and the artist and the auteur and things. So I'm hoping somewhere along the line, these things can all kind of collide, you know, and, and I can do some stuff that a little more in the surreal category, you know, and that because I, I have a great love of obviously the gothic and the surreal as bill does kindred spirits well speaking of kindred spirits thank you for being a part of this this is really a blast getting to spend some time with you guys and just shooting the shit about our genre yeah. and and our mutual love for it well, and thank and you and i can't Thank you, and I'm sure Bill feels the yeah. same way. You've had such an impact on our careers. and Well, as you guys and, did on mine. And, and I know. want to thank you for being such a purveyor of horror and, <laughs> you know, keeping uh, it going. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Well, thanks again, guys, and uh, let's keep it going. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 